Well, today's scripture um, will come from 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 19 to 21. Um, I believe the verses will be above on the screen. So if you can follow along either in your own Bibles or the screen. Um, this is what the word of the Lord says this morning. Verse 19, uh, so he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the 12th. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. Uh, this is the reading of the word of the Lord. Hello, good morning everyone and welcome to True North Church. For those that are new or visiting, my name is Jay, I'm the lead pastor here and I'm gonna be sharing the word of God with you this morning. Um, one of the things that I think oftentimes we hear in the news or just even in our own personal lives, uh, there's always countless stories of kings, leaders, queens, professional athletes, uh, even pastors and CEOs that are re really reluctant to pass the torch onto the next generation. And when you look at even our current political climate, um, you know, some people are saying like, hey, who are, you know, all the people that are in the Senate and, and you know, even uh, those that are running for president, they're like in their 70s and 80s. And you wonder like, oh, why, you know, can't younger people run the country? You know, you, you have that question or thought, right? And this is not to diminish uh, or look down on the elderly, um, you know, because I, I feel elderly right now. Like I tweak my neck, I can barely turn my head. But, I, you know, one of the things that I think is very important is for us to even think about what does it mean for us to uh, identify, mentor, and train up the next generation, right? The unfortunate reality is that this doesn't often take place as much as it should. Uh, there are some of us that are perhaps in experiences in our own lives, right, whether it's in your workplace or even within your families. Many of us uh, might have parents that own small businesses, and, and perhaps they asked us, like, well, what do you think we should do? And, and they just have a hard time letting go. Right? They have a hard time letting go of their own ways or their own thoughts. Uh, and it's just something that uh, just exists in this world where we have a hard time just kind of thinking about, well, what about the next generation and how do we train up and mentor them in a way where they can take positions of leadership in the future? Now, one of the things that um, I am reluctant to share, but uh, I will share for the purpose of this analogy. Uh, when I was growing up, I was a huge fan of the WWF. Um, it's now called the WWE, uh, World Wrestling Entertainment. Uh, I don't watch it anymore, okay, and I'm, not, and I'm not just saying that because I'm embarrassed. I really don't watch it anymore, but I do follow some of the news just because it just comes up on my feed, and what's happening right now is that there is a famous wrestler named Dwayne Johnson or The Rock, and he's, uh, uh, you know, he was a world, I, he's a champion, I'm really embarrassed saying this, but he was a champion for a long time, right? But one of the controversies that are occurring right now is that um, many fans and even people within the wrestling industry, they're upset because The Rock has inserted himself into the main event of WrestleMania. Uh, if you guys don't know what WrestleMania is, that's like the Super Bowl. Oh, I shouldn't say Super Bowl right here. It's like the NBA championship of, of the wrestling world. And he inserted himself into the main event, and many fans were upset because, hey, why, why are you inserting yourself when you haven't really been wrestling that much, and instead give opportunities to the younger wrestlers to rise up in the ranks and, and take on you know, the mantle from you? Uh, and even for myself as a father, I, I, I realize that I have a very difficult time letting go of some of the things that maybe 
I should entrust on my kids, right? So, uh, you know, uh, my oldest daughter, who's 11 now, uh, I taught her how to make ramen by herself. And then this past week, she came up to me and said, hey, can I make ramen? I'm hungry. And my first instinct was to say no, right? And I did say no. I said, no, right? Because I was like, I, I don't want you to do it on your own, right? But she's like, wait, I, already, I know how to make it. I'm super hungry. And, and I, didn't want, I didn't want her to do it because I was like, oh, I got to work. And then I, I don't want to oversee you and all that sort of stuff. And then her younger brothers, uh, they're like, oh, I want, we want ramen too. So I was like, you know what, fine, make it. But you have to make it for your brothers as well. And I just went into the office. I was working. And I came out. And she did a wonderful job. And I even tasted it. It tasted like really good. And she, like, you know, divided up for her brothers and everything. And I was just like, oh, that's awesome. You know, she's now, uh, you know, the second best ramen maker in our house, right? <laughs> and soon she might, you know, beat me as the number one best ramen maker in our house. But who knows, right? And anyways, I, I think it's one of these things and these ideas where we realize that oftentimes um, we have a hard time letting go and allowing others to flourish and allowing others to grow. And allowing others to, to be mentored and discipled and trained up in the things that we need to do when we think about discipleship and ministry. So now, I'm, um, one of the things that I think we see from this passage is that we read today is really the call of Elisha by, by God. And he uses Elijah to be his mentor so that he can be the successor as the prophet of Israel in that nation. So we're gonna, as we read this story, we're going to look at the call. We're going to look at the cost. And we're going to look at the commitment of discipleship. What is the call towards discipleship? What does it require? What is the cost to be able to follow Christ on a daily basis? And lastly, what is the commitment required for us as we follow Jesus in this lifetime? Now, first we go look at the call. Now, when we look at the players, oftentimes in a discipleship, mentorship relationship, there's always two parties at play. The one who is called to be the mentor or the one, to, the one who is going to be doing the discipling and the one who is called to be mentored and to be discipled. So we see the call is, is never a singular call, but it always requires two separate parties, two separate groups. So when we look at this call in this passage of Elisha, we notice that there is a call for Elijah and there is also the call for Elisha. So we'll look, first look at the call of Elijah. As we mentioned in last week's sermon, Elijah is in the pit of absolute despair. He cries out to God, and he wishes that God would take his life. Now, coming off of his greatest achievement ever as a prophet, uh, it is, you know, he, he humbled 400 prophets of Baal. Uh, he defeated them. And then all of a sudden, his life is threatened by the queen of Israel, Jezebel, and he finds himself so distraught that he wishes that he was dead. Now, this is also kind of a somewhat common theme in the Old Testament. We see this also happening with the prophet Jonah, right? After a great achievement of, of, of leading the nation of Nineveh to repentance, what does Jonah do? He wishes that God would kill him, right? And this reminds us of the fact that ministry, discipleship, mentorship is not something easy. It is not something that is filled with just good news and fluffy butterflies, but oftentimes it comes with great grief. It comes with a great taxing upon our life and even upon our souls. In the case of Elijah and Jonah, the feeling of despair comes right after the spectacular event that was orchestrated by God. Right when you would assume that they would be filled with passion, that they would be on cloud nine and be energized and filled with vigor for more ministry. Instead, they are brought to the utter depths of despair, depression, and suicidal ideation. So what can we glean from this in relation to the topic of being called to minister to others? The despair of Elijah 
demonstrates the frailty of human strength and the power of God that is liberated in human weakness. And let me read that to you again. The despair of Elijah demonstrates the frailty of human strength and the power of God that is liberated in human weakness. Now, God had a very specific call for Elijah. He called him to replace the king of Syria. He called him to replace the king of Israel. And he called him to replace himself and find a successor as the prophet of Israel. This is by no means just, you know, easy callings. These are very difficult tasks. And he gives Elijah this task at the moment of his greatest weakness, at the moment of his deepest despair. And oftentimes, that is what God does with us. You know, many, many of us, uh, we think about what does it mean for us to be ready to be in Elijah's position, to actually mentor and, and, and train others, right? And we don't have to look too far to see examples of that in the New Testament. Apostle Paul, possibly the greatest missionary ever, he writes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7 through 10. He says, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. It says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness, uh, weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, I am strong. I think oftentimes one of the many struggles and emotions and, and thoughts that we have in this life is that we question whether we are actually good enough, whether we are actually equipped, whether we are actually prepared and ready to minister to those around us. And, 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 and the Christian life is this weird paradox where the closer we come to Christ and the more sanctified we become, the more sinful we feel. So oftentimes, as you mature in Christ's likeness, you will what will be revealed to you as the light of a God shines bright upon you is, is all the warts and, 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 and all the insecurities, all the weaknesses that are present in your life. And therefore, we will feel as if we are unable to achieve or accomplish the calling that God has called for us in our life, to love one another, to minister to those that are around us, to, to make disciples of all nations. But what Paul is communicating here is that in, because of his weakness, he is now able to see the power of God at work in his life. When I think about Elijah, I see a man who has witnessed the spectacular power of God as he was able to defeat the prophets of Baal. And like many of us, I would assume that what came after was imposter syndrome, feeling of was, I, was it really me? Was I really good enough to do this? And then the anxiety and the pressure and the stress to feel as if he needs to follow that up with another great, great spectacular event. How many of us have experienced that even in our own lives? Perhaps in your careers, perhaps in your work, perhaps even in your families, where you feel like, you know what, I, there's this thing that I achieved that's great, and now how can I follow that up? 
Now, I had that feeling as well, you know, this feeling of, of coming here to plant a church and, and feeling like things are going well. And then the moment I thought about, am I an imposter? Or how am I going to follow that up? Like, what, what's the next level that we need to, you know, take the church now? It, you feel absolutely powerless. And that stress, that anxiety, that pressure, that burden can be absolutely debilitating to the point where you no longer, you know, I no longer felt like I could do ministry in an in a effective and powerful way. And it wasn't until I was able to confess and to really just announce my absolute weakness the fact that I am nothing but a human being in the hands of a gracious God, that in my powerlessness, what can be tapped and what can be expanded within me is the power of God in my life, that only by trusting and clinging to that can I say along with Paul, in my weakness, then I am strong. For his grace is sufficient for me, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And I think that's a very important call for many of us here today. We may feel powerless. We may feel weak. We may feel unprepared and unready for the task at hand. You know, like if you grew up in the church, we have heard this message many times that we are called to make disciples of all nations that we are the priesthood of all believers, that the work of ministry to love one another, to share the gospel, is not just upon the ordained or, or, or the religious leaders, but that it is the duty and the calling of every single follower of Jesus Christ. And then we look upon our own lives and our own insufficiencies, our own failings, our own sins and our own struggles, and we feel that we are too weak to accomplish it. But that is exactly the point where God wants to bring us a point of humility, a point of complete dependence upon him. And that is where Elijah sits. In his weakness, he realizes and understands that it is the power of God at work in his life that will allow him to now go forward and minister and to reproduce and to train and to mentor those that, he is, that, that God calls into his life. Next, we also look at the call of Elisha. Uh, Elisha's call is interesting because we're introduced to him here in 1 Kings, and there's really not much background about who this man is. We don't really get too much information about Elisha. We'll see later on in his ministry, um, just the, and through the evidence of, of his ministry, that there's a divine calling upon him. Uh, there's also evidence in the fact that as Elijah later on is, is swept up into heaven, um, you know, the, the, the Spirit of God rests upon Elisha. Uh, but, you know, this, Elisha, it's interesting because um, his name sounds very familiar to Elijah. And if you're not biblically, you know, if you don't know the Bible too well, we might mix them up together. And Elijah is, is one of the prophets that is, is, is shown with Jesus and Moses at Jesus' transfiguration. We don't really hear about Elisha later, but he is someone who is, by his evidence of ministry, seen as someone who is called by God. But other than that, we don't get much history. We don't get much knowledge of him. And there's little things that we can kind of deduce from this story about Elisha. And one, without really inserting my own thoughts, one possibility is this, that Elisha didn't really have any ambitions to be a prophet of God. Right? He, it wasn't that he was sitting around, you know, trying to insert himself to be a prophet of God. He wasn't actively looking for Elijah or other prophets and thinking, hey, man, like, 
I, I think I got what it takes. You know, he didn't have that sort of uh, self-ambition. He was someone who was living his life. He was, uh, uh, you know, plowing the fields. And he understood also that the life of a prophet is not an easy life. And we'll see that later in just some of the actions that we see. But one of the things that is also important is this, that his calling to be the successor of, of Elijah comes from external sources. It comes from Elijah himself. It comes from the, the testimony of the people around him. Oftentimes, we assume that we need to insert ourselves into specific positions or specific roles. Uh, but oftentimes, it's really the calling and the, and the testimony and the evidence of those around us that are able to really show us what we are called for. And that happens when we together as a body are able to minister to one another and we're able to recognize not only the giftedness in each other, but also the calling that we might feel that the Lord is pressing upon our hearts about your role or your calling or to challenge others around us to that. And so this calling, I think, is very important in that there's external forces at play that calls Elisha to a ministry that is very, very difficult and very important. It is a divine call, and it is a call that is, is you know, evidenced by the ministry of fruit that we see later on. But next, we also have to look at the cost of discipleship. Discipleship is not convenient, it is not comfortable, and there is a clear cost to following Christ. Now, Elijah... Uh, Elisha is willing to sacrifice and give up his previous life to obey the calling of God. Okay? And, and these are some of the things that we see in this very short passage. One of the things that we notice right away is that Elisha, he's the son of Shaphat, uh, and he was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him. Okay? The fact that he has 12 yoke uh, of oxen means that most likely he comes from a very well-off family or he himself is very well-off. Uh, he, has, he has 12 farm animals at his disposal, and he's actively working in this sense. So again, um, you know, we see somebody who is perhaps living a very comfortable life, and yet he is called into ministry. He is called to be a prophet. Then as we read further on, we see Elisha, he responds to Elijah, and he's asked, let me kiss my father and mother, and then I will follow you. And Elijah responds, Go back again for what have I done to you, right? So just to kind of clarify that statement, what Elijah, Elisha is asking is like, hey, I need to go and say goodbye to my parents. And Elijah's like, yeah, go ahead. Like, what have I done to you to make you think that you can't do that? Go ahead and go and say goodbye, right? Now, if you guys are familiar with Scripture and familiar with the New Testament, this will kind of maybe uh, point you to a story that you might have read in, in the Gospels, where Jesus responds to some of the people who want to follow him, and he says, hey, follow me. And, and they say, hey, like, let me go bury my, my dad first. And he's like, let the dead bury their dead. Right? So if you look at Luke chapter, uh, chapter 9, in verse 57 and 58, it says this, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. 
But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, it, it's, it seems like it's almost parallel text here, but there is a, a huge difference in what's going on uh, between Elisha and what Jesus is responding to some of the people that were asking about following him. So in, in Jesus' case, in this case, the first person asked, he says, hey, let me follow you. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. What he's communicating to this particular person is this, that if you really want to follow me, you have to understand that following me comes at a cost, that it is inconvenient, that it is uncomfortable. See, for the Jewish people of this day, they understood discipleship and mentorship in the, in the idea or the, uh, the, the, the system of, of rabbis and, and those that are under rabbis. And what would happen during this time is that rabbis would select people to be their disciples or these other, some disciples would come and, and, and kind of ask the disciples to be their mentors. And what they would do is they would follow these rabbis around and then they would learn about the Torah, the Old Testament scriptures. And this was a system in, in place where all the people of Judaism and Jewish people would understand that this was a very reverent thing to do. That people who seek discipleship from rabbis were seen, uh, were revered. And on top of that, it was really just a matter of just learning scripture and learning, learning uh, about the Bible. It was, it was almost like a seminary course. But the, what was not required was, it was not required for inconvenience or discomfort. It was almost kind of like in, in our modern day as if... Uh, you were going to college, but you went to a commuter school, so you still stayed at home. So your, you know, your parents still did your laundry for you. You didn't have to learn how to do your laundry. You didn't have to learn how to cook your own food. You just kind of commuted back and forth. But what Jesus, so Jesus responds to him, and he says, uh, you know, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. What he's saying to this man is, if you truly wish to follow me, it's going to be uncomfortable. It's not just a part-time thing. You have to completely give up your life. Now, there were examples of, of people who followed prophets in this time. People became disciples of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was not a rabbi, but he was a prophet of God. And what type of life did John the Baptist live? He, he was a wild man out in the wilderness eating locusts and honey. His, prof his disciples also lived out in the wilderness with him, eating locusts and honey probably. They didn't get to go home. They didn't get to go back to their family. They had to completely give up their life to follow John the Baptist. In the same way, if we are following and being discipled, uh, disciples of Christ, then we have to completely give up our entire life to follow him. That there might be things that are uncomfortable, inconvenient, maybe even difficult, and yet that is the cost of discipleship. Next, he also says to a man who asked to follow him, he says, let me go first bury my father. And then Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. You're thinking, hey, this is kind of a, kind of a jerky thing to say, right? Uh, and now, this is kind of, we have to understand culturally what's happening here. Uh, the Jewish people... What they would often do is that, number one, um, they would have to wait for their, all their family affairs to finish 
And then they feel like they are now finally free to do what they want. There was a, a, a familial duty that they had. Uh, and also, if the person's father is dead or, if, or a family member dies, you bury them in a tomb, and then you wait a year, and then you rebury them. So most theologians, what they believe that this interaction is talking about is that, number one, what this man is requesting is that he waits until his father finally dies, and then he'll follow Jesus. Right? And the other possibility is that he's saying, hey, my, we just buried my father in the tomb. I got to wait a whole year before I bury him in the ground. So let me do all that before I follow you. And what Jesus' response is, no, the call to make disciples of all nations is an urgent call. It is absolutely urgent. We can't wait, a long, we can't wait around to follow me. Now, I think this is, is very practical and very applicable to many of us. Because what are some of the excuses or what are some of the thoughts that we have? God, once I start my career, then I can live my life for you. God, once my children are grown and out of the house, then I can truly follow you. God, once my kids are out of diapers, then, then I can really minister to the people around me. God, once, you know, once I finally finish school, then, then God, like, I, I, I can start going to church again and, and, and being involved again. You know, we, the, the reality is I'm only halfway done with my life, hopefully, right? And the older I get, the more excuses keep piling on. The excuses never stop. There's always going to be something that needs to be taken care of, and there's always going to be an excuse. But the cost of discipleship is that it is urgent, that it must take precedence over anything else in this life. And that is exactly what Jesus is saying. And the third example says, yet another said, I will follow you. But he said, let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This is a direct callback to this very passage in 1 Kings chapter 19. Because what is Elisha doing when, Jesus, when Elijah calls him? He, is, he has his hand on the plow. He is plowing his field. And what Jesus is saying to this man here in the New Testament is saying, if you want to follow me, you can't look back at your old life. You can't turn back and, and wish for all the things, all the regrets that you had in your previous life. Instead, you must now look forward and you must follow me. For the people of, 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 of the Jewish origin here, they understood exactly what this meant because the landscape of the Jewish land was very rocky and very hard to plow. And if you are a farmer plowing the fields, the, if you look backwards, you're going to mess up. So you always have to keep your eyes in front of you. And I think that's very important is that the cost of our discipleship means that we cannot look back at our old ways and our old life, but we must constantly look forward to what Christ has in store for us. Many of us, we are all, you know, some of the things that often occurs at church is that we're very guilty of placing all of our hope and, and all of our, uh, I guess, clout in, our, in the nostalgia of our previous relationship with Jesus. 
Okay? What I mean by that is this. Oftentimes, we are kind of running on the fumes of the credit that we thought we accumulated in our early days of our relationship with Jesus. That might be in your youth group. That might be in your college days. That might be in your young adult days where we always think back of all oh, the good old days of church, the good old days of ministry, and the good old days of, of how I grew. And we, we have a hard time looking forward to the fact that things change. Culture changes. The call that Jesus has for our life is also changing. The call that he had for me when I was a single adult is very different from the call that he has for me as a married, married man with uh, three kids. The call for me as a college student is very different from a call for me now as a pastor and leader of a church. In the same way, if we continue to look backwards, we are not going to see where God is taking us in the forward direction of our lives. So discipleship, the cost of discipleship, that it is, it is urgent, it is uncomfortable, and it is something that is, it costs us to completely sacrifice our previous life for the sake of following Jesus. And that is what Elisha does. That's why there's a difference between the New Testament passage and Elisha. Elisha is not saying, let me go back home because I want to just cling to my old life. He's saying, let me go back home so I can sacrifice and finally say that I'm done with my previous life. So what does he do when he goes back home? He sacrifices his oxen, and he uses the plow and the yoke as firewood to boil the meat of all 12 of his oxen so that he can offer it as a sacrifice and feed his, you know, his workers and his family to signify there's nothing for me to come back to. For I take upon this calling that God has called to be the next prophet of Israel. Many of us, we are unwilling to sacrifice our previous life. We cling to it. We hold on to it. And we kind of straddle the fence. We, we want to follow God, but we also want, you know, we want the good things of this world too, right? Now, I'm not saying that you need, we all need to go back and, and sell everything we have or anything like that. It's the mentality and attitude that we know that the priority of God's calling in our life takes precedence over everything else in this world. As difficult as it sounds, if God has an... A, a, an option for us to follow him or lose your job, it should be an easy decision to follow him, right? But the reality is that it's hard because we're human. We're fallen. We, we struggle. And that's the cost of discipleship for us. Lastly, it takes commitment. Elisha's actions display a total commitment to the calling that he received from God. Now, I, I'm trying to put myself in the position of Elisha's father, it's like, like, hey, why you got to burn all the yoke and kill all the oxen? Like, I could just, you could have just gave it to me. Like, I could have handled it, right? But it's, it's that type of commitment that Elisha had. He didn't want any possibility of potentially going back to his former life. He understood the, the permanence of his call to now follow Elijah and be mentored and trained by him. And he didn't want any distractions he didn't want any temptations of something that he can look forward to going back to. So he burns everything. He sacrifices his animals. And he says goodbye to his parents. He says goodbye to his family. He is fully committed to the divine calling to be the successor of Elijah. Now, his life, Elijah's life, many of our lives 
following Jesus means that our life will have its up and downs. The moment we accept Jesus, we receive the greatest joy of, of eternal life, but we also are going to have hardships in life. That's inevitable. So it requires commitment through the hardships. Now, there's a story that I saw recently online. Um, I don't even know if this person is famous or not, but it was a very inspirational story, and I thought it was very re uh, relevant to us today. It's the story of a man named Race Bannon, um, and his brother tells this story. Now, his brother is telling the story about his brother, Race Bannon, and he says uh, there, there was a time when the number one amateur boxer in the world, um, he was set for a fight, but his opponent dropped out last minute. Now, the manager of this amateur boxer was reaching out to all of his network to see, is there a way that we can find a, a last-minute replacement to fight the number one amateur boxer in the world? Everyone was declining because there was not enough time. There was not enough time to train. And number one is a dangerous situation. Um, but he reached out to Race Bannon's manager, and Race Bannon's manager came to Race Bannon said, hey, you want to fight the number one amateur boxer in the world? And he said, let's do it. He was young. He wanted a free trip to New York, and he thought it would be a fun experience. He was not even a, uh, a, like an amateur boxer. He, you know, he, he was trained to be a fighter, but boxing wasn't his main thing. But he went there, and he had to lose 12 pounds in a matter of 48 hours to make weight. And on the night, he steps in to fight the number one amateur boxer in the world. At that point, I was like, dude, this is going to be like a Rocky story. He's going to win. And then he says, my brother lost. He said uh, it was the worst beating that he'd ever seen. For 12 rounds... He just got his butt kicked. In the hospital, he sh showed that he had multiple broken ribs. Uh, his eyes were both swollen shut. Uh, and, but he said the worst injury was that he almost bit off his tongue, uh, you know, because, you know, he got punched in the face too much, right? And then every round, in between every round, the trainers had no really advice for Race Bannon because he was so unevenly matched. But Race Bannon, every, every round, he would say, do not throw in the towel. He says, I can get knocked out and carried out of this ring, but I will finish this fight. Do not throw in the towel. So at the end of the fight, he spoke to his brother. He said, hey, I finished the fight. That's not where the story ends, though. Um, about four years ago or three years ago, uh, there was a tragic accident in Utah. There was a sandstorm that came up. Uh, eight people tragically died from this sandstorm in a car, in a car crash. And five of those people were Race Bannon and his family members. So his brother, as he's telling this story, is talking about the fact that his brother and, and five of his family members had just died from this car accident. And then he says this. He says, life is kicking my butt. It's very easy for me to want to give up. Very easy for me to want to throw in the towel. But what I learned from my brother is that I'm going to finish this fight. I may not win, but I'm going to finish this fight. Now, there's a similar story that we see in, in Scripture. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6 through 8, Apostle Paul at the end of his life says this, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but all who have loved his appearing. The main difference that we have in Christ compared to Ray Spann and his brother's story 
is that we've already won. There is victory in Christ. That what awaits for us is a crown of righteousness that is given to us, not because we deserve it, but because of the victory that Christ has achieved upon the cross. Throughout our life, we're going to get bombarded. We're going to get beat up. We're going to have broken ribs. We're going to get punched in the face, and we're going to want to give up. That is what the cost of discipleship is. To do ministry amongst people that are broken and sinful, we are going to get bombarded. We are going to get hurt. We are going to get uh, betrayed. We are going to feel as if all everything in this world is stacked up against us. But the call is to be faithful, to fight the good fight, to finish the race. Because the outcome has already been determined. We win. We win. So in this journey in discipleship, the call that God has given to us to make disciples of all nations, to be the priesthood of all believers, to invest and minister in the lives of those around us is not an easy calling. It takes sacrifice. It will be costly. It will be painful. But we must continue on and fight the good fight, finish the race, for a crown of righteousness awaits us. Let's pray.